I would worry about people that weren't feeling eco-anxiety because we measure mental health by looking at our capacity to respond to external reality. And the external reality is frightening. We only respond to threats that's here. So until it's here, right in front of our nose, we delay our emotional response to it until we become informed, until we wake up. So teachers are crucial in this because they are in the center of educating and enabling children to get information about this, which is accurate. The British Council presents the Climate Connection. La connexion climatique. Die Klimakonnektivität. La connexion Climate Action in Language Education. This is Episode 8, Present Tense. Hello and welcome to The Climate Connection, a British Council podcast focusing on climate action in language education. I'm your host, Chris Souten. This is Episode 8, Present Tense, in which we look at how anxiety about the climate is a serious and growing problem, in particular amongst young people. The Climate Connection in this episode, we'll be speaking to Caroline Hickman from the Climate Psychology Alliance. And because Caroline had so many interesting things to say in our discussion, we've divided her interview into two parts. So please sit back and enjoy the double bill. So eco-anxiety is an emotionally healthy response to the reality of what we are looking at is happening in the world today. It's not a mental illness, it's not a pathology. I would worry about people that weren't feeling eco-anxiety because we measure mental health by looking at our capacity to respond to external reality. And the external reality is frightening. It may not be frightening as you look out of your window in Wiltshire, but if you take a global perspective and you look at what's happening with the fires in Australia, in California, in Portugal, if you look at the ice melting and the sea level rises, if you look at the fact that the waters are warming at the equator, so fish can no longer live there. If we think about the impact of climate change and the number of climate migrants it's going to be creating, then we can immediately start to see this as a global concern. It's a global perspective. So as soon as you start to take that perspective, you will feel anxiety and you should. As I said, I would worry hugely about people that didn't. Now, adults can often defend against that far more than young people and children. And to be fair to adults, frequently adults would be far more worried about pressing concerns like feeding your children or keeping them safe or paying the rent. So that can push away those anxieties for adults. But what we need to do is bring them back into conscious awareness because these are often at the forefront of young people's minds. So eco-anxiety is both the anxiety that we feel as we look at external reality, but it's not just that. People think that's all it is. It's not. It's the anxiety we feel about that external environmental degradation. But that's only half the story. The other half is the anxiety is made worse and not fixed at all because of adults' failure to act on it. And it's not just adults, it's government's failure to act on it. It's the people with the power to act, whether it's oil companies or governments. So we then look to our elected governments and expect them to act 
in our best interests, to take care of us, to take care of the environment, to make wise decisions. So we look at the evidence and we think, well, hang on a minute, we've declared a climate emergency, but we're still building another runway at Heathrow. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. You know, why are we not taking more action on this? And what happens is our anxiety is raised realistically, but then it can't go anywhere because the people with the power to act are failing to act. So the anxiety then becomes 10 times worse. And then people dovetail into a spiral of depression and despair and grief and rage and helplessness and impotence and don't know where to go with that. So that's all part of eco-anxiety. Eco-anxiety is not just anxiety. It's also the depression, the despair, the helplessness that we feel when these people with the power to act are failing to act in our best interests. And that can leave you feeling helpless and impotent and powerless with rage. And that is a global issue, isn't it? If you want to talk about eco-anxiety, come and talk to me. And yeah. it's, you know, it's working quite well. And all the different sort of media that you've used to sort of do that. It's, you know, from sort of blogs, podcasts, yeah. academic articles, chapters, etc. To get people to understand this stuff because the the distress it's causing, particularly children and young people, is extraordinary. And people don't get it. You know, the gap between those who get it and those who don't is enormous at the moment. And I think that will close in the next few years as more and more people wake up to the realities of what we're facing. And I just want us to be ahead of the curve when it comes to the onslaught of mental health problems that I think it'll bring. Absolutely. And what, what kind of support do you think teachers need to prepare for that? You know, we've been doing a number of different things with groups of teachers, with Teach the Future and with other teacher organised groups and the Science Teachers Trust as well, who've been approaching us saying, can you come and provide some training, some support to teachers? Because it's often science teachers, geography teachers who are being asked to teach about climate change. And then so they teach the science, they teach the facts, but they're not being asked and they're not equipped and they're not trained to teach the psychology and the emotional impact of that. But unless we join that up in our minds to understand what we're seeing and then start to respond emotionally to what we're seeing, then we just push it away. We go into a kind of disconnect, a disavowal and says, oh, well, it's a bit scary, isn't it? But anyway, we'll be, we'll be flying again soon and, oh, the government will sort it out or, oh, technology will save us. We have a way of displacing the concern about it psychologically through our defenses and we only respond we're very fundamental basic creatures psychologically we only respond to threats that's here right so until it's here we won't in right in front of our nose we we delay our emotional response to it until we become informed until we wake up so teachers are crucial in this because they are in the center of educating and enabling children to get information about this, which is accurate. Because children are online, they're Googling, they're finding out for themselves. And that can be more terrifying, I guess, as well, if they're getting that information raw and not filtered or not curated by teachers or out of their adults, that can lead to sort of more negative situations. Well, I think it's complicated. So I think on the one hand, you're absolutely right. It can really traumatise children and frighten them because it's like watching a horror film. You've got all this information, but you've got no way of doing anything about that. 
On the other hand, children are often feeling quite betrayed, neglected and abandoned by adults who are failing to talk to them about it. So I think it goes both ways. So I'm delighted that children are taking action and informing themselves. And on the other hand, I want them to be able to do that in partnership with adults so that they can then have those conversations with adults, whether they're teachers or whether they're parents or just more mature or slightly older children and young people. I think there's a role to be played for all of them. I'll give you another really good example. So the Eco Awareness Day a few weeks ago and invited young, it was young people organised. They'd spent a year organising it which was brilliant. And they were getting the children while swimming, cooking food, digging gardens, lots of practical engaged. And all of the whole of the upper school was involved in this. So what was brilliant about this was it wasn't an add-in to the curriculum. Everybody was involved for the day, all the teachers and all the children. So it normalizes it and doesn't split it off and make it something that you have to add into the curriculum. And they had me there, they were like, right, here's 50 teenagers, you know, educate them about eco-anxiety. So, yeah, you know, unless we've got this systemic understanding, we won't find the solutions. And I think teachers, back to your original question, teachers are crucial in this because teachers can really educate children in how to not just think about this, but also how to integrate how they feel about this and start to use their emotional understanding in order to take action. And what sort of support do you think teachers would need for that? Because, of course, when yeah. you're talking about those sorts of issues, I guess there's the risk of things like vicarious trauma that they can suffer. So if the teachers yeah. themselves are not protected and don't have those mechanisms, uh, their own mental health uh, is at risk as well. Absolutely. Well, teachers and parents, one of the reasons they can sometimes struggle from my experience of talking with a lot of them is because they've not fully processed their own feelings about the climate and biodiversity crisis and their parents themselves. They've got young children or they've got grandchildren. And so what that does is it triggers lots of guilt and shame and grief in anybody who's thinking about the younger generations because we're facing this because my generation, I'm older than you and my generation has failed your generation who is failing the younger generations and the generations before me have failed. And I'm very clear in the way I communicate about that now that this is a failure and we are culpable and we need to take responsibility for that, but not collapse in guilt and grief and shame, but stand in that and take responsibility and say sorry. Psychologically, it's about rupture and reparation and repair. And once psychologically, the only moment psychologically that you can start to change things is because you realize things are broken. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, we've really messed up. Or, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm really not dealing with this part of my life. And every therapist breathes a sigh of relief at that moment and says, oh, now we're going to get somewhere because you recognize that there is a problem. So I think teachers themselves need, are really crucial in terms of speaking about the education system and lobbying to put pressure to change that system. But in turn, they need to be supported in making space in the curriculum to talk about this. They also need emotional support. They need information about it, but they also need emotional support to process their feelings because you're absolutely right. They will sometimes be faced with the children's trauma 
And what that does in adults is it triggers guilt. We want to protect children from frightening things. We don't want to expose them to frightening things. But the way I talk to parents and teachers about this now is that from my research, because I've worked a lot with parent groups as well as with teacher groups over the last six, seven years, I talk to them about parenting and teaching into the Anthropocene, that where traditionally we would protect children from traumatizing things, we now need to learn how to educate them about this, to prepare them, because otherwise if we protect them too much, they will be traumatized too much later. Mm -hmm. So we need to introduce it to them. But I'm going to tell you what Sophia says. Now, I, not only am I allowed to use her name, I have to use her name. Otherwise, I'm in, in trouble with her. So Sophia was eight when I had this conversation with her, when I started my research with children about how they feel about climate change. So this was six years ago. And so before I started my research, I started talking to lots of children about how do I talk to you about this without scaring you? How do we have these conversations? Because that was part of my kind of preparation for my research. So I'm going to tell you what Sophia said. She said, well, she said, you've got to tell me the truth. She said, because if you don't tell me the truth, you're lying to me. She said, and if you're lying to me, I can't trust you. She said, and if I can't trust you, I can't tell you how I feel. And if I can't tell you how I feel, then I'm left on my own with my feelings. She said, and then I feel abandoned by you. I love this child. I wish she was running the country. I mean, she's amazing to be that astute at uh, the age of oh, eight is she's incredible. Totally, totally understood. But she then went on to say, she said, but listen, she said, don't tell me all the bad news all at once. Tell me the bad news, then the good news, then the bad news, then the good news, then the bad news, then the good news. She said, don't tell me the bad stuff all at once or all the good stuff. She said, because I'll know you're lying to me. She said, and anyway, she said, I'm not a baby. So Sophia has totally nailed it as far as I'm concerned about the way we need to communicate with children. We need to have the courage. Children need us as adults to have the courage and to find ways to communicate and talk about it. But some of that is about using creative methods and some of it is storytelling as well as the science and the facts. And some of it is about teaching the emotional resilience so I spend a lot of time working with groups of young people and children, teaching them about mental health, teaching them about emotional resilience, teaching them about emotional intelligence in order to prepare them for managing those facts about climate change. So we have to do the groundwork, which is really useful to them in all aspects of life anyway. So we need to actually be doing that to prepare the groundwork. Now, teachers and adults also need some of this. This is about raising the uh, awareness of the whole population to know how to navigate difficult truths. The Climate Psychology Alliance talks about facing difficult truths. So this is about developing the skills to not, to not hide these things from children, but understand how to talk to them about it so that they can understand and then they don't feel alone. Children tell me they feel abandoned by adults if they don't talk to them about this. And we'll hear more from Caroline later in the show. Hi everyone, my name is Catherine Zhou, an English teacher in Tanzanian English Language Teachers Association Regional Coordinator in Kilimanjaro Region. Uh, in my classroom, I teach environment issues to the students, such as how to keep the environment clean. We address the challenge that the students are facing 
and we come to agree that the students get the challenges during their menstrual period. So what we discuss together is how to solve those challenges by starting the project of establishing reusable sanitary pads which help girls to stay in school and receive the education more than boys, the same as boys. So what we did first in a class, we teach them how to make their body clean, that is hygienic education, and they get the chance to learn the body parties. From there, they improve their English vocabulary, understand their body parties by mentioning them and touch their body parties. Also, we establish the, these reusable sanitaries that they wash and use it for many years, which reduce the cost in their family level. Also, what we did together as with I and my students, we established the clubs of girls empowerment that were moving in different schools and help girls to know the challenge that they are facing and how they can keep the environment clean. When I get this chance to explain about this, I found this is a very interesting thing that we work together in the environment, in the in the, in, in their body issues. And from there is when we develop the grammar and different language that they use it in their classroom and also they put it into practice when they are maintaining the environment which are living surrounded. As a result, the toilets are not blocked in and um, and they did that and we are not seeing that disposable which they can be displayed in different parties of the school and other environment outside of the school so we are not seeing the disposable parts which are being displayed in different areas of the environment so by giving this education to them inside the classroom now when they go to the environment they get time to maintain the cleanliness inside the school and outside of their communities that is how we I use the environmental issues in my teaching classroom. Thank you so much and I'm happy for sharing. Thank you. The climate connection. When we think about the climate crisis, one of the first phrases we think of is fossil fuels. In this episode of the Green Glossary, we dig down into the history of this phrase and learn how it has changed and evolved over time. The Green Glossary. The Green Glossary. Brought to you by Oxford University Press. Hello, my name is Trish Stewart and I'm a science editor at the Oxford English Dictionary. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the term fossil fuel and how its meaning has changed over history. Fossil fuels are the world's primary energy source and provide up to 85% of the world's energy. However, it is now understood that the burning of fossil fuels releases large amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which contributes to global warming and climate change. Although our concerns about the environmental impact of using fossil fuels are relatively recent, the term itself is not, and its meaning has shifted significantly over the past 400 years. When we hear the word fossil, we tend to think of petrified dinosaur bones, that is, bones which have turned into stone. However, the origins of the term have nothing to do with dinosaurs at all. In fact, the word was used long before humans knew what dinosaurs are. The word fossil was first used in the early 17th century to mean a rock or mineral substance dug out of the earth. 
Therefore, any object which was removed from underground could be described as a fossil. A 1606 quote in the OED talks of the mines of metals and fossils and lists iron and lead as different kinds of fossils. This usage dies out in the first half of the 19th century and is replaced by our current understanding of the word. The current definition of fossil in the OED is as follows. Something preserved in the ground in petrified form, recognizable as the remains of a living organism or as preserving an impression or trace of such an organism. Basically, the stony remains of something which was once alive, or at least an impression of their shape. This usage appears around the start of the 18th century. So a quote from 1736 describes fossils as stones that have either the impression or else the regular form of shells, leaves, fishes, fungi, etc. Fossil fuel is probably the most common compound of fossil and was first used in the second half of the 18th century, primarily to refer to different kinds of coal. This reflects the original meaning of fossil, something that is dug out of the earth. For example, the OED has a quote from 1789 stating that the township of Coles Hill in Wales is so called from its abundance of fossil fuel. And in fact, the author goes on to state that he doesn't know why the county of Flintshire in Wales is so named when the county is totally destitute of the fossil usually so called. As an aside, current place name guides to Wales interpret the name Coles Hill as Coles Hill. That is, a hill associated with a person called coal. So here we can see that flint is also referred to as a fossil because it is dug out of the ground. But it's not a fossil fuel because it isn't combustible. Coal is both a combustible fuel and it is dug out of the earth. People in the 18th century certainly knew about petroleum, oil and other substances that we now call fossil fuels but they were not mined in the same way as coal, and so originally were not described as fossil fuels. It's only in the late 19th century that fossil fuel comes to be applied to petroleum, oil, and natural gas, rather than just different types of coal. These are all substances that are found in the Earth's crust, can be used as a source of energy, and are formed as a result of geologic processes acting on the remains of organic material, such as algae, plankton, bacteria, and plants. But fossil fuels aren't made from the remains of dinosaurs, nor are they made from what we conventionally regard as a fossil, as I described earlier. These fossils are created when parts of an organism, the hard parts generally, are replaced by minerals, that is, inorganic or carbon-free compounds or when an imprint of the organism remains in rock. They aren't combustible and definitely wouldn't make good energy sources. However, the association of dinosaurs with fossil fuels is persistent. It's interesting to note that the American oil company Sinclair uses an Apatosaurus as its icon, created as a marketing tool in the 1930s to symbolize the vast age of the crude oils, which the company refined into their motor oils. More recently, the term dinosaur juice has been used as a humorous name for oil or petrol. And a recent internet meme asks whether plastic toy dinosaurs are actually made from real dinosaurs. That is, if plastic is made from oil, which is made from dinosaurs. Of course, the answer is no, because oil isn't made from the remains of dinosaurs, but the association is hard to shake. 
As I mentioned earlier, fossil fuels still provide up to 85% of the world's energy, but it's becoming ever clearer that their usage needs to be limited if we want to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and air pollution. The proportion of energy produced by renewable sources, such as wind, water, and the sun, is increasing as a result. However, usage of the term fossil fuel hasn't decreased. In fact, it's more common than ever before. But the context in which we discuss fossil fuels have changed. So nowadays, it's more frequently used with words like divestment, transition, and phasing out. And so it seems that despite the efforts being made to replace fossil fuels as a source of energy, the term fossil fuel itself will remain relevant for many years to come. As promised, we now rejoin Caroline to find out more of her insights into climate anxiety. The Climate Connection A project I've been working on for a number of years with the British Council called Language for Resilience, and there's an argument that the act of learning a second language is a, it can be a safe space in order to explore some yeah. of those ideas which may be more challenging or distressing or sort of anxiety-provoking if, if done in your own language, in your mother tongue. Do you see that that sort of doing it in another language can help to explore some of those issues? So that would make perfect sense as a psychology psychotherapy technique that we use all the time to help people talk about traumatic, painful things, which is called personification. So I ask them to imagine that climate change is an animal. And if you imagine that climate change is an animal, then you are personifying climate change, which is a traumatic thing. And you're imagining it to be an animal. And then I say, and what would that animal say? So it's the same technique. You're taking it slightly outside the person, locating it into some other object, whether it's a language or an animal or a, a picture or a poem. You're displacing it into something psychologically, consciously, deliberately. So it's not a defense because you're doing it consciously and deliberately. And then you're using an imaginal bridge to help you to imagine what that would be like. So what it does is it allows you to start to move into painful, traumatizing material safely, slightly at a distance. I use puppets in the same way with young people and adults all the time. So we use a puppet and we say, what would the, what would the puppet say? about this. So it would work in exactly the same way in a second language. It's just I've never come across that before because you're taking it slightly outside the person, allowing them to imagine what that's like, gradually start to get used to this because we would like people to gradually get used to these things. And then slowly it will be psychologically integrated into their original language, which will allow them to build up that resilience and understanding. It's really interesting. Yeah. And I think there's the added advantage as well is that say for adults or for sort of the parents of children who might be doing that, they might think, well, if they're in a situation where they're a refugee and they think, well, why are we even talking about climate change? You know, some of the work I've done with Syrian refugees mm. is they don't see it as a priority because of all these other pressing concerns, which you which yeah. you mentioned in terms of their hierarchy of needs, this sort of existential threat is actually fairly low down. But when, I, with the learning I, English, there's a sort of tangible, real outcome, as well as the benefits that can be accrued by, by talking about this. I think that's really interesting, Chris. But I also have worked with groups of young refugees from Iraq around this, and they have understood that connection with climate change. And I do completely understand that it, when you've got these other pressures, it can be hard to keep this at the forefront of your mind. 
But the way I approach that with young people, with refugees themselves, is to talk about having a both and solution rather than an either or solution. So it doesn't displace the other concerns and you don't have the hierarchy in that sense. It's both and, and that heals that rift mm. because it is both important and your other personal needs are important too. But we need to use emotional language and psychological understanding to support people to tolerate both being important. And that is about resilience, but it's also about understanding that it gives us this opportunity for global empathy. It brings something into the frame there that you can't get any other way. Because I frequently talk about my own eco-anxiety by saying, I do not want it taken away. Don't you dare take it away. Because by reflecting on my own eco-anxiety, it allows me to empathize and feel compassion for people around the globe who are feeling that immediate terror today. It connects me empathically with them. So it makes me feel connected globally with their concerns. Now their concerns then become my concerns and it stops us othering people, seeing this other problem as being located somewhere else. Because actually what's happening in Bangladesh and Syria and Iraq and Iran is my problem because I'm part of this global community. So it helps to heal that rift between us. And it's that empathy and that compassion brings us back to a shared humanity. It also helps us to start to examine the need to heal the same rift between ourselves and the environment, between ourselves and nature, because we other nature, we treat nature as this thing outside ourselves, where we only care about the existence of a tree because of its economic value or whether it's getting in the way of HS2 train line. So we can remove it without care and without compassion. Sally Weintraub in the Climate Psychology Alliance talks about the culture of uncare. And what all of that thinking of othering and uncaring does is it legitimizes inhuman treatment to other people. So it legitimizes, when we other people, it legitimizes treating people with a lack of care. And it legitimizes, if you take it to the extreme, it legitimizes torture, it legitimizes racism, it legitimizes treating people as though they were worth less. And that is shameful as part of the collective experience of humanity. So if we continue down that road of othering nature, othering black people, othering the other, then we will continue to create systems that don't care, don't mm -hmm. care about the planet, don't care about children's distress. And we hear that narrative when we see some of what's written in the press about the youth climate strikers. They're spoken about as though they were animals. And climate migrants and refugees are talked about as swarms you know, as an invading horde. So, so the language whole... choices are, are so important there, oh, aren't they? Is how the it's language. presented. The language exposes the values underpinning those attitudes. And by examining that language, we can examine what we mean by that. And then we can challenge those underpinning attitudes. But we can also understand the psychological harm that is done to people as soon as you are othered. What it does is it means you are worth less as a human being. And what that does is it internalizes that grief and that separateness and that pain in that person who is othered. And they internalize that sometimes psychologically and believe themselves to be worthless. 
And you know yourself from working with refugees how important it is to build their self-esteem and build their capacity to assert their rights, to speak out on their own behalf and not internalize that because then what happens is there's terrible levels of self-harm and mental health problems, right? And again, just linking back to what you were saying earlier about the primary school in Bath, the same is true there, isn't it? It's about giving those students agency, empowering them and making them realise they can make a difference, whether that's making a, you know, a crocus whale or, yeah. or whether that's something much more, you know, substantial, say, with a, with a refugee in, in Lebanon. Absolutely. But I also talk to them about the fact that those two things are the same. So actually, every small act we take is connected to the bigger acts. And the bigger acts are in turn connected to the smaller ones. So I talk about having the importance of a balance between internal activism and external activism. The external activism is, of course, taking action physically out there. But simultaneously, we need to do internal activism, which is about taking care of our own feelings of vulnerability and uncertainty and fear and doubt and shame. So it's about giving people permission and validation to take care of their own feelings and take time to do that at the same time as take action on the outside. Can I just ask you a little bit there about your use of the word activism there, because it's a word that in many education systems, teachers and principals and government ministers would be afraid of, certainly in the UK and and in many other countries, just the very use of that word. How can we manage that situation? How can we you know, present the the positive side of activism, do you think, within schools and making those links between what students learn and what they then want to do outside of the classroom? The reason people become activists is because they feel disempowered and they don't feel listened to and they need to get their voices heard. So they are driven to activism because they are silenced and disempowered. So if schools work alongside in partnership with the children and young people and say, okay, so how can we take that energy and that need and find a way to work together to get your voices heard in the community in a meaningful way, then you're not asking the children then to rebel and have to leave the school in order to have their voices heard. You can't ask children and young people to respect you as a teacher if you're not listening to them and taking their concerns seriously. And certainly within the field of English language teaching, where skills like critical thinking are very actively promoted, they see is absurd when students are reflecting on the situation outside and wanting to do something about it to then shut that down and treat a skill like critical thinking as something purely academic. Absolutely. But again, it's about having relational solutions. I'll give you another really nice example here. So I Pre-COVID, I used to do lots of public talks and I was doing one one evening in Bath as part of Pint of Science. So this is in a pub, which is great. And lots of people were showing up public, different age groups and a mother and her teenage daughter turned up and they weren't talking to each other. And it was one of those arguments where I think they'd both forgotten why they weren't talking to each other. And they were both sat there and I gave this talk a little bit like we're talking here. And the mother emailed me the next day because well, part of my talk is encouraging adults to say sorry to children. Every chance I get, every youth conference I speak at, all the young people I meet, I say, sorry, I'm sorry, we failed you. And I am really sorry. And you need to see me as an adult, say sorry and mean it and not collapse going, oh, I'm this terrible person or defend and blame you and tell you to shut up and go back into school. That's my defense. You need to know what it's like to have an adult say sorry and ask to repair it. What can we do together to fix this? 
And when I do that with young people, they say, oh, gosh, thank you so much. Because when they try and talk to their parents, their parents are like, no, shut up. I can't talk about this. Or, you know, so I was doing this in this talk and the mum wrote to me the next day and she said, OK, she said on the way home, she said, I said, sorry to my teenage daughter. She said, so I did what you said. I said, I'm really sorry that we failed you. And her daughter said, OK, right. What are you going to do about it? And the mum said, what do you want me to do about it? And the daughter said, well, I've missed the deadline for my extended project in school to change my extended project in school, but I want to change it to do it on climate change. And the school won't want me to change it because I've missed the deadline. She said, I want you to come into the school tomorrow and tell the teachers that I'm allowed to change it. And the mum said, OK. So she did. She went into the school the next day and said to the teachers, we went to this talk. I'm doing this because this is what my daughter has asked me to do. And the teachers went, OK, we'll let her change it. Right. And, you know, this was just so empowering for the parent and for the young person and for the school to learn how to listen to each other around this and find ways to work together. I'm going to give you another example. I was working again, this was about three years ago, with a group of young people in Bath and we sat in a park under a tree one day and I said to them, what do you want from education to help to prepare you for the climate crisis? And they said, right, we need schools to not teach us about oxbow lakes. That's not that helpful. They said, we need geography to take a global perspective that talks about the impact environmentally globally. That's meaningful to us. We want to learn about that. They said, we want schools to teach us how to build boats, how to build shelter, how to grow vegetables, which plants we can eat, which plants are poisonous, how to take care of our natural environment, how to take care of our bodies as the world gets warmer. We want to be taught those practical skills because those will be useful to us. They said, but that's not all we want. We also want to be taught how to have complicated conversations with parents who don't want to talk to us about climate change. Coming back to the language issue, isn't it? So what, what language yeah. do we need to be yeah. able to do that? Well, actually, exactly. And the last thing which you're going to love is they said, we want lessons in how to lobby politicians and make a difference because we want to use the systems that are available to us to create change, but the systems are not listening to us and we need support to take that forwards and make an impact so those are what we want lessons in and they said and then we'll be in school learning that right if we go back to the critical thinking discussion it's an entirely logical conclusion to come to if the, the mechanisms that's in place for that are not working you look for alternative solutions and we force children to go to the streets and take this outside if we're not working in partnership with them but these are wonderful educational opportunities and it's empowering isn't it because you're learning these new skills that you didn't know you had and it builds your self-esteem, learning languages. Everybody I work with who speaks different languages to me, I always ask them to teach me a few key phrases in their language. And I'm fairly rubbish at speaking different languages. It's just not something that comes naturally to me, but I work really hard to learn a few key phrases. And learning those few key phrases really feels good to me to be able to say hello to people and welcome in that language. And it means a lot to them. And so we can have that shared humanity again 
in that moment. So this is also about getting them to feel good about teaching me something. And I think language transcends all of these borders and barriers and differences, because we are then again talking about that language of humanity, of care and concern and compassion, which for me, it sort of, if we can find these things that are shared, these are so much more powerful than the things that divide us. Absolutely. Caroline, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. The Climate Collection. Thanks to Caroline for her fascinating and hugely valuable insights into this crucial issue. Please visit her website, www.carolinehickmantherapy.com, for more. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is an enormous, complex country in the heart of Africa. In today's episode of From the Field, we visit Malayaka School, a school which focuses not just on education for the girls who go there, but on empowerment for the whole local area. Please visit malayaka.org to find out more. Okay, we have to avoid deforestation. That is to say, we have to avoid to cut trees. Is it okay? Is it okay? No. I'm Noela Kosaris Musunka and I founded Malaika in 2007. Malaika is a non-profit organization with a mission to empower Congolese girls and their communities through education and health programs. Malaika has become the heart of the community and it truly functions as a replicable ecosystem consisting of a free accredited school that provides a comprehensive education to 370 girls, a community center that offers a range of programs to 5,000 youth and adults, a clean water program with 20 wells that service over 30,000 people each year, and a sustainable agricultural program that provides two nutrition meals each day to students and staff. We were given a space on the school farm where plant vegetable that we sell and teach us our money, our clean to work in our garden as school. We have seen firsthand how educating girls and women can transform an entire community, guided constantly by the community's needs and wants for all of our initiatives. Malaika serves as a model that can be replicated in other communities throughout Congo, Africa and the world. Through a school and community center, Malaika wants to achieve equality for girls and for girls across the world, while empowering them to pursue whatever dreams are on their hearts. Okay, let's continue with uh, the problems with the environment or environmental issues. Why do you think it's important to protect the Earth? Because it's planet where we live. Okay, because it's a planet where we live, thanks, then we have to protect it. Nice. Now, what are the ways to protect the Earth? By growing trees, uh-huh. avoiding plastics, okay. buying local, uh-huh. less use of cars, yes. use less water, uh-huh. use renewable energy. 
Blondine, for example, wants to be a teacher one day. Abigail hopes to be an IT engineer. And Francine is already well on her way to mastering the technology it takes to be a DJ. These young women have incredible potential. And through a top-notch, all-encompassing education with a strong emphasis on leadership. Hello, my name is Mama Ilunga Beatrice. I live in the village Kalibuka and study at the Malaiki Community Center. My daughter studies at Malaika School. The advantage of having a well nearby is that it's much quicker and easier for us to prepare our children to go to school. When a well is located far away, girls can suffer a lot. Sometimes, when fetching water, they are beaten by boys or sexually abused, and other times, it just makes them late for school. Malaika functions as a self-sustaining ecosystem within our interconnected programs. But we also teach our students and community about sustaining the outside environment. Our agricultural program serves several purposes. It helps feed our students and staff two nutritious meals each day. And in turn, students and community members learn about sustainable farming practices as they tend the garden. Additionally, we are able to provide employment opportunities through this program. My name is Marceline. I'm a student at Malaika School in grade 4 of pedagogy. In the computer class, we learned programming. We are making an application in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Malaika is powered 100% by solar panels. We teach our students about recycling and youth from a community center clean up the village each month. We incorporate sustainable environmental education and practices into all of our programs to pave the way towards a healthier Congo and a more sustainable world. Thank you. La Conexión Climática That's all for this episode of The Climate Connection. For show notes, bonus material and previous episodes, please visit the show website www.britishcouncil.org slash climate hyphen connection. And join us next time for episode 9, Environmental Rights, in which we explore how the global climate crisis is represented in English language textbooks. Until then, goodbye. The Climate Connection. La Connection Climatique. Die Klimakonnektivität. La Connection Climatica. It's a good job that I can do the talk in my sleep about eco anxiety. I actually did wake myself up the other night giving the talk. So I literally <laughs> can do it in my sleep. That's a bit of a gap there. I didn't see the Yeah, yeah. Sentence. So that was fine apart from that last bit. So if you could just do that again. I'll just do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> the Climate Connection.